0: be seated let's go philippians chapter 2 if you don't have a bible we're gonna we're gonna have the uh the text up on the screens behind me in a little while also uh underneath the seats in front of you you should find a little white paperback bible uh i think there's something valuable that happens when you have it you know sitting in book form in front of your face on the screen's great but there's there's this thing that's just effectual on a greater level that God seems to use when you're looking at it on your very own and so uh, if you don't have a bible grab one of those Uh, if you don't own a bible don't have access to one outside of this place We'd love to give you that one. Um, We believe that God's word is effectual. It does what he intends for it to do. Uh, We believe that it is the thing that he uses to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We also believe that it's the primary means by which he shows himself to a world that doesn't know him. It's like the way he gave us to teach us about himself. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, hear the pastor in the room say, take that one home. We can buy new Bibles. Uh, we think we, it's more valuable for us for you to take one home and start reading it than it is for it to sit underneath a chair for a while, all right? And so, if you don't have one, take that one, all right? Uh, also, many of you, maybe all of you, were handed one of these as you walked in the door. If you're the note-taking type of person, uh, first of all, I love you because we should be friends. Um, if you're not, that's cool, but we're not going to hang out. Um, if you are a note person uh we got a this thing right here is an opportunity for you to take notes there should be pins in your chairs and you can do that on the front and inside this fancy little handout Um, every week we produce something that we call the next step guide and it's just stuff that you can kind of do some research on your own it's got little headings called read research pray and go it's just some stuff that you can kind of press in a little bit based on the topic of what we talk about for that specific morning and so that's on the inside of our little handout this morning normally it's a separate sheet of paper but our secretary miss jody uh was a true champ and like put a bunch of stuff together for this week so philippians chapter two um Man, I love Easter. But let's be honest. Everybody's favorite holiday is Christmas. That's not true. Mine is obviously Thanksgiving. Um everybody, everybody kind of loves Christmas, but there's this thing that Christmas kind of has all this baggage around it, like there's all these cultural things that have been piled on top of Christmas, and so it's kind of hard sometimes to, to sift through all of that stuff, and uh, and yeah, there's the, there's the reason for the season, all that kind of thing, but you can you can spend days being fully invested in the Christmas season culture without ever really getting to Christian things, which is a tragedy, but it, it, it is what it is, right? And so we just kind of kind of run with that Easter though feels a little purer. feels more like it's ours like you've ever heard somebody say I prefer college football because it's less tainted there's no there's no money in it which isn't true at all but uh like it's a pure sport that kind of deal Easter feels like it's a pure Christian religion we get to say yeah that was ours right so Christians we make a big deal out of Easter right I, I, I hope you think so we we think so. We spent a little bit of money on it this year. We're we're celebrating today. We added stuff to our normal Sunday calendar. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on around Easter. We celebrate and we laugh and we have a good time. And it's all about King Jesus. Like if we were to say the reason for the season when it comes to Easter, it's King Jesus. Now depending on your church background. King may not be what you think of when you think of Jesus, right? For a lot of us, it's meek and mild, or we think of the cross, and uh, we, we think of uh, Clairol hair and holding a little lamb, or whatever, you, whatever your mental picture is. A lot of us, probably most of us, don't think king the first time Jesus enters into our head, right? It's not our knee-jerk reaction. But that's definitely the way the Bible talks about him King Jesus in the book of Philippians the Apostle Paul is kind of a pastor type figure of a church in a city called Philippi and he writes a letter to them to Encourage them. He writes a letter to a church. So, a group of Christians is what this letter is addressed to. All right. And he writes a letter to them to encourage them and to correct some minor things. Now, Philippi, the church of Philippi, had significantly less problems than a lot of the other churches that Paul had to write to, other New Testament letters that we have. Uh, But in Philippians chapter two, Paul, speaking to a bunch of Christians, says this. Look at verse one. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, he says, right? So Paul, in a a way of encouraging the church at Philippi, tells them that their attitudes and their actions, or at least the attitudes and actions of people who are identified as God's people, Christians, that they should be characterized by a few things, most notably humility, right? Right? That's, that's what he tells them. Hey, you're, the way you talk to each other, the way you interact with each other ought to be characterized by humility. He tells them to count others as more significant than yourselves. And I think most everybody in this room would go, yeah, that's right. That's good. Like every one of us, or at least most every one of us in here would immediately say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds noble. That's that's virtuous. But why? And then many of us would probably come back with the the comment, well, the world works better that way. Says who? Your kindergarten teacher? And so our culture has developed all these ways to kind of dismiss this kind of stuff and so we we talk about cultural constructs or or evolutionary appendages or this and that and the other I think a I think a better argument is that there's this thing deep in our hearts that knows that this is not only good but actually beautiful right don't you get a little weepy every time you see a story of self-sacrifice yeah yeah yeah, we, we do. All of us have this thing in us where we immediately connect with, resonate with a story of self-sacrifice when it plays out in front of our eyes. Whether you're scrolling through your news feed or watching some kind of major movie. Like, and I'm not just talking chick flicks. I'm talking like every end of the spectrum when it comes to movie. You can go super masculine, epic war movie like Saving Private Ryan, right? Tom Hanks looks at him and says, earn this. You can go at the other end of the spectrum with like kitty movie, right? Like Inside Out. I've got kids. If you've got kids, you've seen that movie. And you know what I'm talking about, right? When Bing Bong jumps off the rocket ship so that Joy can make it up on the cliff. Got me right in the feels, man. <laughs> no, there's this thing in us that resonates with the story of self-sacrifice, we immediately connect to it and say, that is good, that is right, that is beautiful, right? Every one of us goes, mm, I like that story. I like that story. Paul says that the thing that should characterize God's people is an others focused humility. And every one of us goes, that's good. Yeah, that's good. In fact, that's, that's obviously good. Any writer worth what you're paying them will see that in somebody's heart and tap into it. That's why we have so many movies that have that storyline, right? That's why over and over again we see that story play out. Paul says that the thing that should characterize God's people is an others focused humility. Now look at the next couple of verses, chapter, uh, verse 5. He says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to." Verse 7, "...but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death." even death on a cross. So Paul connects this, this deep thing in our souls of self-sacrifice and understanding that that's good and right and beautiful. He connects that, that deep level, core level emotion with the story of Jesus. And he, and he tells that story. He says that Jesus, who has every right to cling to, hold on to, clutch with a death grip all the privileges of heaven. Like, I, I think I deserve those privileges sometimes, but Jesus actually does, right? There's a difference between me and Jesus, right? Jesus deserves those privileges. I do not. Paul says that Jesus, even though he deserves those privileges, emptied himself and took on the form of a what? A servant. You want to know the reason why you resonate with the story of self-sacrifice? It's because it's a shadow of a far more eternal story, Paul tells us. It's a shadow of something playing out on a far more eternal scale. Maybe you're here this morning and you're working through the truth claims of, of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. Here, let me give you a doozy, right? We celebrate Christmas, Christmas, because God himself went through an incredible act of humiliation. He emptied himself of all of his privileges, all of his rights, and took on the form of a servant. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But the story doesn't end with Christmas, does it? It keeps going. Look at verse 8 again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, comma, even death on a cross. You may be new here, you may be for the very first time working through what does it mean to actually be a follower of Jesus. Let me me throw some stuff out there for you. The Bible teaches unequivocally, as clearly as it teaches anything else, that the penalty for a life of rebellion is life itself. That because of my sin, I am separated from a holy God who is perfectly good, perfectly righteous, perfectly lovely, perfectly holy, and I very much am not. Bible also teaches that He's perfectly just, and always. Hear me, Nashville Baptist Church, always does what is right and deserved. Sometimes I think I'm pretty awesome, but there are less narcissistic moments in my heart where I know that that's not true, and I know that if I were to stand before this holy God and have to give an account for my life, it's not going to go well for me. How about you? The Bible teaches that because of my sin, I am separated from this holy God. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus steps in, sees that need, sees that separation, says, I'll own this one. I got it. The Bible teaches that a life of rebellion, a life is owed. And Jesus says, You can have mine. You can. Have mine. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if you're working through the, the truth claims of, of being a Christian, that we celebrate Good Friday because Jesus, in a great act of humiliation, laid down his own life to absorb a just, perfectly wise and righteous punishment that I deserved and you deserved. We celebrate Good Friday because Jesus says, I will take it. But this isn't Good Friday though, right? I mean, we're closer. It's the same weekend, but we're not not here to mourn a death today, right? We're here to celebrate a life the eternal king of glory willfully of his own volition wore a crown of thorns. But that's not the end of the story. So if you've, the reason why we resonate with the story of self-sacrifice is because it's connected to a far more eternal picture of a God who sacrificed on our behalf. Anybody want to take a guess why we all seem to resonate with the story of the good guy winning and being fully and finally eternally vindicated? Anybody want to jump off that cliff and figure out why we resonate with the story of the good guy winning in the end? If you've got a bookmark, Maybe it's a ribbon, maybe it's a little card, maybe it's the little piece of paper I gave you all while ago. Whatever's good for you. If you've got a bookmark, put it in Philippians, and because we're going to come back to it later, and come with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It'll be to your left if you're working through a physical Bible. It's in the Old Testament, and that means that it was written before Jesus comes onto the scene. Right? In fact, in Isaiah's case, about 700 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. Uh, it's got an immediate, um, an immediate point of, of reference for Isaiah's day. All right? He's speaking to some things uh, in his time period, uh, most notably uh, the fact that israel god 's covenant people are are going through a hard time they 're walking in some terrible sin and it 's ingrained in the culture and, and uh, god 's going to do something about that and so he 's writing specifically to that context, uh, but Isaiah kind of has two main sections you can kind of break it in half right the first roughly half of Isaiah is all about god 's coming judgment right because god 's covenant people are connected to God on a relationship level, his glory, his fame is directly attached to their righteousness. And because they are not righteous, God's got to do something about that. So he's going to give them a wake-up call in the form of the Babylonian army. Right? He's going to bring in Babylon, they're going to uh, decimate the place and they're going to take the Israelites off into captivity to be slaves. And So that doesn't sound like a fun little picnic. All right? And So a wake-up call that's going to be. All right? And so the first roughly half of Isaiah has the tone of God's going to bring judgment, God's going to bring judgment, God's going to bring judgment, you better watch out. But in the chapter 40, there's a shift that happens. And from that point on, not, we don't hear about the promise of God's coming judgment. We hear about the promise of God's coming restoration. It's a different tone. That after this judgment happens, God's going to restore his people and thereby restore his glory. And over and over again, we get the reference of what Isaiah calls the suffering servant or God's servant. Now, like I said, Isaiah is specifically writing to the context of the Israelites about to be taken into captivity into Babylon. But when you get to chapters 52 and 53, it's pretty easy to see why Christians think that Isaiah was ultimately talking about Jesus. So let's look at it together in verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah says this, Behold, my servant, there's the suffering servant we're talking about. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they will see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed that, or what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, he, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he, is, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no d- deceit in his mouth. So let's call time out there real quick. Anybody having a hard time seeing why Christians think this is about Jesus. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. There's a pretty solid reason why Christians think this is about Jesus. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. Like, people get in these weird debates sometimes about who's to blame. Which evil group is responsible? And some point to the Romans, and some point to the Jews, and there's this weird thing in our culture where if you say it was the Jews, then it's kind of that you're accused of some things, but all of those weird debates ignored that the Bible explicitly teaches us that it was God's idea. Like, that's not just, that's not just inferred. That's explicit in the text. It was the will of God to crush him. God's not making this up as He goes. He's not reeling or reacting to anything. The Bible teaches that it was his plan from before the foundation of the world. That the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was going to be carried out exactly like it was going to be carried out. The suffering servant is going to be put to death. It was his idea. Look at verse 12. Therefore, time out. We have a theme today. You may have noticed it. Now, I, I took as many Bible classes in college as I could. You ready for some incredibly deep Bible wisdom? <laughs> Find out what the therefore is there for. Genius, right? So what did we just say? The suffering servant was going to be put to death. He was going to suffer many things. He was going to be humiliated. He was going to be despised and rejected. He was going to be physically hurt, pierced for our transgressions. He was going to be oppressed and afflicted. It says he's going to die. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says that because, not, not, not just a correlation, these things aren't happening at the same time, but because the suffering servant was obedient to be humiliated, to be rejected, to be crushed, therefore he will be victorious. I don't know if you've thought through this, but it says that he's gonna divide the spoil with the many, with the strong. Just roll that out in your head for a second. You don't get a share of the spoil if you're laying dead on the battlefield. Right? You're not tossing a purse of coins on your chest as you lay there bleeding. You're the guy walking away. Isaiah says that this suffering servant is going to be crushed, but he's going to ultimately be proven to be victorious. He's going to be vindicated, we could say. All right? That though he was crushed, he's still walking out the winner. All right, back to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Hopefully you had your bookmark. Otherwise, you're going to be turning a lot of pages. Look at verse 8 again. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, what's our word? Look at there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here in Philippians 2 connects the story of Jesus and what he has done and what he has accomplished to the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. It says, because he was obedient to the point of death, because he was obedient to be humiliated, because he was obedient to being crushed, because he was obedient to being put to death, therefore, he is going to be ultimately and forever vindicated. He stands victorious over the grave. Therefore, God has bestowed upon him highly exalted him the name that is above every name so that the name of jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess because jesus was obedient to wear the crown of thorns hear me church he has every right to wear the crown of glory see how our design guy made cool artwork Because he was obedient to wear the crown of thorns, therefore he has every right. It is his by ownership to wear the crown of glory. There's a song we sang at the opening of the service, uh, crown him with many crowns. I like that song. I'm the guy who likes deep lyrics in music. I could care less about all the periphery stuff. I like to think as I sing, and I love Crowning with Many Crowns because there's like 20 verses to it, which is weird, and you can't play all those verses in a service, but like every verse kind of steps up the weightiness of the awesome. All right? If that's a way of saying that, probably doesn't connect with many of our older generations. All right, steps up the awesome. In the final verse, of crown him with many crowns. It says this, crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. Ain't nothing touching him. <laughs> ineffably sublime. That's a lyric that'll sing right there. Because he was obedient to wear the crown of thorns, he has every right to wear the crown of glory. So if you're working through the truth claims of Jesus, if you're trying to figure out if it's in it, if it's worth it and it's in you to be a follower of him, here's your your last proposition to think through. We celebrate Easter because the king of glory has forever defeated sin and death on our behalf and those who are his will be forever his and we will be, he will be forever ours. Process through that this morning. So what is this, What is? what do we do with this information? What do we do here? In another letter that, the Apostle Paul wrote to another church in the city of Corinth, the Greek city of Corinth. And in fact, uh, we actually heard it read this morning. It's a long section about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians five or 15. And um, in that letter, he tells the Christians in Corinth that the resurrection of Jesus is a foundational thing in the gospel. So much so that if it's not true, then who cares? I mean what are we doing here? The Bible teaches that because of the resurrection of Jesus that Christians have hope not in this life but in a life to come. And if all we have is our 80 years, well then who cares if you step on a few people along the way? You go do you. That's what Paul says. That if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead and all we have to hope in is what we can gather for ourselves in this life and, and however many years you've got, man, man, you go eat some spinach and make it long as, as, as long as possible. Do you use some Pilates or something? I don't know. This says because we have hope in this life to come. Because we have this short life In light of eternity, that it's nothing to put others first. It's nothing. You don't have to go get yours. Count others as more significant than yourselves, he tells us. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, Our responsibility is to figure out if we're living in such a way that we can put others before ourselves. Are we living in such a way that proves the resurrection is real? Do the words that come out of our mouths, the actions that flow from our hands, the the things that we do in and around our circles of influence, do they bear testimony to the fact that the resurrection changes things? you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, the question I present to you is do you live like Jesus is not in the grave anymore? Because if the resurrection is true, it changes a few things, doesn't it? If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, do you live and walk and speak outside of this place in a way that reveals the cosmos-shaking reality that the suffering servant has been fully and eternally vindicated? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and it'll be your opportunity to respond however God's calling you to respond. Maybe you're here this morning and you aren't a follower of Jesus. To you, like Paul, I would say this is the resurrection true? Because if so, is there any other truth in the history of the world that affects your life more? Probably not. And if it's not true, well, then as one of the Christians in the room, I'm above all most to be pitied. We've been wasting our time. You have to decide whether or not the resurrection is true. If it is, it changes everything. If it's not, you go do you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already decided that it is. How do you respond? You come to him. Jesus paid the penalty for our rebellion, so we come to him and lay our rebellion down. We repent of sin and we come to him as Lord. And if that's you this morning, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and it'll be your chance to come. We're going to have some people down here to talk if you want to talk through stuff. But here's the thing. God is big enough to work with you on a heart level. You don't need to talk to somebody, but we're going to have some people stationed down here if you need that. If you want that to, to work out what those things mean and what, it, what does it mean to, to, to actually call him Lord. That's a, that's a weighty statement. You shouldn't take it lightly. it's also an incredibly freeing thing so if that's you we want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning kind of distraction free i'm going to pray and we're going to sing we'll have some people down here to talk if you need to talk and then after that we're going to tell a couple of stories we're going to give you a picture of what it looks like to take the next step of this eternal life sound good Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for sending your son to die. That he could not stay dead. The grave could not contain him because he was ultimately righteous and he had to be, had to be vindicated. God, because you were Obedient to wear the crown of thorns, you are owed the crown of glory. And we long for the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We long for the day when we will be forever yours and you will be forever ours. God, for people in here who may be processing through what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to become a Christian, would you make yourself known to us this morning? I'm a firm believer that when we see you for who you are, we are forever changed by it because you are lovely and beautiful and good. So make yourself known to people this morning. May you save hearts and lives this morning. As we sing, would you call people to respond however you're calling them to respond? Would you give them the courage to take the next step? A life of following you as Lord is wholly and completely different than any other life. So may we count the cost. But may we also trust that you are good and better than anything we might give up to get you. For you are risen. You are risen indeed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.